The Rural Health Voice, Episode 32, Autism Services to Go. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What's 29 feet long and brings autism services to rural Virginia? Angela Scarpa, Director of the Virginia Tech Autism Clinic and Center for Autism Research, and Jennifer Bertolo, a doctoral student clinician, join me to discuss the Mobile Autism Clinic. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Hi. So we have, looking at your website, your mission to improve the quality of life for individuals with autism and their families through intervention, education, and research directed towards effective treatment and prevention. How does that mission play out on a day-to-day basis? Well, uh, through the Autism Clinic, we train graduate students in our clinical science doctoral program to provide services to the community. And the way that we do that is through our classes, our research, and the experience through the clinic, they can actually um, provide supervised experiences, interventions, consultations, and diagnostic assessments to people in the local community. And Dr. Scarpa, you founded the Center for Autism Research, correct? Mm -hmm. And what was the motivation behind that initiative? Well, the the Autism Clinic was founded in 2005, a couple of years after my own son was diagnosed. He was diagnosed right before his second birthday with autism. And at that time, I realized that there were limited services available in our local community for him and also for others who were being diagnosed. Um, It turned out at that time that autism was, the diagnosis was increasing rapidly and there were few evidence-based services in our area um, that could help the local community. So that was my, so really my son was my inspiration to start the clinic. So you said it started in 2005. Mm -hmm. What changes have you seen in how autism is diagnosed and treated in the last few years? Oh, there have been a lot of changes in the last decade. Most notably, our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual was updated in 2013. Before that, the autism diagnosis fell under an umbrella term called pervasive developmental disorders. Um, After that, the individual diagnoses like autistic disorder and Asperger's disorder were lumped under one term called autism spectrum disorder. And I think what happened at that time was a recognition that autism wasn't just one thing, but many things. And we didn't really understand what all the different etiologies were. So it was time to put all the diagnoses back together so that we could start doing the research to to differentiate it more clearly. So we realized that autism was a spectrum. That was one big change, that it varies widely from person to person in its presentation and its severity. And we also realized that autism may or may not have language impairments. It may or may not have intellectual impairments. Those were all changes from how it was thought about before 2013. Another thing that changed was we began to recognize more autism in adults 
at that time. Um, and that even though autism is thought to start early in development, we may not actually recognize the symptoms until a person is much older and the demands of the social environment um, surpass their capacity to deal with it. So understanding autism from that viewpoint of lifespan and also that it was a spectrum were some huge changes. Now, you mentioned adults with autism. When I hear about autism in the news, I almost exclusively hear about children with autism, usually in terms of how schools or parents are addressing autism. But it doesn't go away when the child turns 18, does it? Um, so that's a great question. As Angela started alluding to, um, autism we know to be a neurodevelopmental disorder. So while we're expecting it to be present from very early on in development, we're also expecting that some subset of these difficulties in one presentation or another are going to follow an individual throughout their life, and that's going to include adulthood. And so what might start as difficulties maybe in the classroom might later look like difficulties with independent living skills, for example, or um, difficulties with something like maybe interviewing skills for a job. Um, and so while we're not expecting it to go away by adulthood, it can certainly change a bit in its presentation and the different supports that we can put in place. Um, and we know that if we're able to kind of get some of these supports in place a bit earlier on, it can really change the trajectory for individuals that they might be better supported prior to and into adulthood. So what age ranges are you seeing at the center? Um, at the center, we see the entire lifespan. We really do work with all ages. Um, we have assessed and treated, um, or sh I should say, we've assessed um, individuals as young as probably 16 months of age and as old as 83 years of age. Um, so really running the whole spectrum there in terms of lifespan. Um, but we do tend to see the most school-age children, both for assessment and for treatment here. <clears throat> Looking at our rural communities, what do you see as the greatest barriers to providing care to the autism community? Barriers that we have seen um, and that the families have reported to us um, are really a lack of providers in general when you consider how spread out the population is, that resources in general are scarce the more spread out and rural a community is, um, but particularly a lack of providers who are trained specifically in autism spectrum disorder. Um, so we tend to see a lot of families coming in that they haven't been able to get that help and that expertise before or that maybe the knowledge around autism isn't as rich as it is here in some of the communities. Um, in their schools, doctor's offices, etc. Um, and kind of an extension of that is just the geographic isolation um, in its own right is that their distance from a center like our university or other universities or major hospitals um, is really cumbersome to families when you consider having to maybe take off an entire work day just to travel to get um, an assessment session completed. Um, in addition to that, the affordability of services, um, when we're looking at the rural area near us, the socioeconomic status tends to be much lower on average, um, and the cost of assessments um, and treatment services can really be quite steep in general. Um, so having to take into account a difference um, in maybe what is able to be afforded in terms of services. Um, and then one other thing that we've kind of noticed, um, which I think kind of serves as a little bit of a protector to some of these barriers, is a difference in family supports. Um, so a lot of times when we get... Um, 
kind of into a less rural area, we're seeing more immediate family support. And what we've tended to see with a lot of these families in more rural communities is a lot of extended family involvement. Um, and this can mean a few things. It can mean that there are a lot more individuals in the household, a lot more services that have to be juggled and balanced, et cetera. Um, but it can also mean that they have this really rich extended family um, kind of kinship relationship that can actually be quite supportive in terms of the number of people in the household that maybe understand the autism diagnosis, the services that they're getting, et cetera. Who are the strongest collaborators for your work? Well, we've been very, very fortunate, I must say, to work with wonderful community partners. Our biggest partners so far have been Mount Rogers Community Services and CA Human Services, which is based in Richmond. And thinking more about that team, who, who else would you like to invite to the table? Who's missing? So I would say from our community services board and the people we've worked with, mostly that involves counselors and mental health providers. So I would think the best addition to help with us would involve um, educators and early intervention specialists and even pediatricians and family practitioners. Um, and I say that because I think they can help us to kind of bring all the services together in some sort of wraparound, uh, really looking at early identification and diagnosis of autism, and then moving into early intervention, and then hopefully educational supports as the children get older. I also think it's really important, I'll put a plug in for policymakers, I would love to have more policymakers involved in working with us. Um, to actually find ways that we can reach the people in a way that's affordable and accessible. In 2018, you decided to take the show on the road. How and why did that happen? That was a lot of fun. Um, in it started from a report that was released by the Appalachian Regional Commission and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation back in 2017. And in that report, they indicated that the Appalachian region continues to face a lot of health struggles and um, a higher number of both physically unhealthy days and mentally unhealthy days. Um, we were not very happy to hear that, especially since these areas are in our own backyard. They also indicated that it may be that these barriers are because there's a lack of specialty providers, and that includes mental health providers in the region, um, higher rates of poverty, lower income, things like that as well as some of the strengths that Jen noted, um, strong family ties, social ties within the community. So we thought it would be great if we could help address some of the barriers first to see whether it applied to accessing care for autism and then whether we could actually find a way to overcome some of the barriers and help the people in the community. Um, we're very much in the business of helping people, being a land-grant institution. Our value is to serve the community, and that was something that we wanted to do as part of our program. So I guess I could go on a little bit from there that we applied for and we received some grant funding to expand the services that we provide in our home clinic here in Blacksburg and provide those services out in some of the rural communities beyond Blacksburg. So if they couldn't come to us, we wanted to be able to go to them. So with the grant, 
from the Malone Family Foundation actually allowed us to purchase a 29-foot RV and renovate that RV so that we had therapy space inside the, the vehicle and we could take it on the road. We could drive, if people couldn't come to us, we could go to them. So that's how the Mobile Autism Clinic was born. So do you just like go to the RV store and pick one out? How, how does that work? <laughs> it took a while for us to figure it out since I am not an expert in RVs. Uh, part of the grant allowed us to, to hire our rural outreach coordinator, and she did a lot of homework in finding um, the right kind of RV, the right size that would have the kind of space we needed. And we were able to find a used one that was within our budget um, and purchase it from a location uh, called Chances Creek, actually out in the communities that we are helping to serve. So we can also support their local communities. So do you have a feel for how many visits you've been able to do with the mobile unit? Sure. So um, since we began using the mobile unit um, back in June of 2018, um, we have served about 25 families or so with a total of about 109 appointments. Um, and so this has been made up from a number of different types of appointments. So for the first year that we were operating, we were doing individual therapy sessions with children and one or both of their parents. Um, the same individuals were being seen on a biweekly basis. So we saw about eight families during that time. Um, and then this past summer in July of 2019, we began offering assessment and psychoeducation or parent education um, services through the mobile clinic. Um, and so what that looks like um, has been about 17 individuals for whom we've gone out and conducted a comprehensive autism assessment. Um, and for the majority of them, um, we've then gone back out on the clinic to do a feedback session, followed by up to two more psychoeducation or parent education sessions to inform them a bit more about autism spectrum disorder, related services, um, navigating service systems, insurance, etc. And I can add that what's been really exciting about having the Mobile Autism Clinic is that we're able to overcome some of those barriers that we found to occur in the rural areas. So one, of course, is increasing the accessibility and the availability of expert services and autism. But the other one is because we are a research and training clinic, we're able to offer those services at discounted rates. And also sometimes as part of research projects, the services could be um, even free. And we have been able to benefit from different grants and contracts to help maintain our services, um, especially from CA Human Services and Autism Speaks have been two of our um, greatest beneficiaries. And uh, we're very appreciative of, of that. We continue to look for funding to keep the, the clinic operations, um, basically to keep the mobile autism clinic running in the future. Do you have a story or example you can share with us of someone who visited Mac that might not have otherwise had the opportunity to access these services? 
Um, sure. So I can speak to that um, being a clinician that travels out on the MAC each week. Um, and rather than speak about a specific family, um, I think we're seeing a trend in the type of family that shows up on the mobile unit. Um, while we're assessing children from toddlerhood right up through um, kind of just shy of adulthood, we've seen a really high concentration of kind of older school aged um, to even kind of middle school kids going into high school. Um, and for a lot of these children, this is the first time they're getting a diagnosis. Um, and we know that we can make the diagnosis within the first years of life. And so for these individuals, this diagnosis is coming quite late compared to, you know, the point at which we can first detect autism um, and much later than the national average in these areas. Um, so for these individuals, we've had several parents report that when it comes to kind of um, vying for the individualized education program, their IEP within the school, that they've actually not been able to obtain certain services that they've needed their whole life through schooling in the absence absence of a diagnosis and there hasn't been anybody who has been able to assess them and come through with this diagnosis to um, make them eligible for those services. Um, so for a lot of these parents, this gave them the opportunity to bring in our report and their diagnosis and have new windows open for them um, to perhaps qualify for an IEP so that they can then qualify for some of these accommodations that might then make the school day and home day um, a bit more doable for these kids. Oh, that's wonderful. I assume that the mobile autism clinic has its challenges as well. Um, yes, it definitely is different to have a clinic that you drive on wheels as opposed to people, you know, coming to your clinic that's planted firmly in the ground. Um, I will say, um, as Angela had started alluding to, there are some major benefits to taking it out. It really does overcome a lot of the barriers to families. So the families, um, for the vast majority of them have hardly had to travel. It's been actually within their hometown. Um, but we've even seen families um, kind of beyond um, the locations that we've traveled to. So we're almost meeting them halfway. Um, and so even that can be a really big difference in the distance they have to travel, um, being able to overcome the costs, of course. Um, but what that does mean is that as the clinicians, we are driving out to them, um, which is obviously kind of a, a cost for the clinic in terms of time. So we know that we're taking a really long day to go out there and do those assessments. Um, what that does mean is that we run into things like weather, I would say, is probably our biggest barrier. Um, if you have a clinic with a firm foundation in the dirt, um, it doesn't blow away. Um, um, and so you can't, um, you know, drive a clinic if there's 50, 70 mile an hour winds. So we've definitely had some instances of maybe having to cancel or delay a family's assessment by a week um, in order to safely operate. Um, so it's just been a learning curve, I think, of different considerations that you might not expect when opening up an office or a clinic um, that you might not normally have to account for. Um, but with that, um, so far, we've still been able to see every family that we've scheduled. Um, they've been very flexible, and we've been able to be very flexible, fortunately, in getting them rescheduled. But I will say weather is something that you run into with a mobile clinic. Um, I will say another barrier that we run into um, is a lot of the families that we work with um, especially given kind of their income and their rurality, um, we are finding kind of a difference in things like cell reception and internet access. Um, so a lot of our families, for example, um, may pay for a month-by-month -month phone plan, which means that there might be a week on any given month that they actually don't have access to a cell phone. Um, and so we might be reaching out to a family on the wait list um, and not being able to get in contact with them for a little bit um, or 
maybe not being able to get in contact with them as readily through email or something along those lines. But what we have found is that once we have gotten in contact with them and secured them coming in, um, we've even been able to go as far as using video conferencing for some of our parent education services. Once we're able to kind of plan for those things in advance and make sure that they can secure that access in time. So it's definitely, I think, a learning curve in terms of kind of setting up the appointments initially. But once we get them in, we've been able to kind of maintain that contact with proper planning and um, overcome some of those technology barriers. Now, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but let's dig a little further. So in addition to providing services for people in rural communities, MAC also serves as a training site for clinicians. Tell me about that process. That's right. Because we're part of the clinical science program in psychology, we have a mission to train our student clinicians. Um, it's really important to us to train the next generation of service providers and researchers as well. So we try to combine both um, the research training and the service training together. Um, we find that we have students from all over that come to our program and it's and they may not always be able to have the experience of understanding the unique needs and challenges that are faced by our rural citizens. So this is an opportunity for them to really firsthand see what it's like to live and to try to get services in a place where there may be many, many barriers and challenges that are thrown in the family's way. So Jennifer, for you as a student clinician, what have you seen as the benefits of being able to train using Mac? Sure. I think Angela touched on a few of them, but I think we get really phenomenal clinical training experiences here at our university clinics here in Blacksburg. Um, and so we get things like autism assessment training experience or autism treatment experience. Um, but by going out on the Mac, we're able to kind of get this more firsthand experience with the families who are disproportionately affected by these disparities and stressors that they face every day um, that I think is really different from maybe servicing the child of somebody who works at a university who maybe is really high income, who has the luxury and flexibility within their schedule to take a day off from work without major penalties. Um, and I think for us to be able to go out and work with these families who just need these services in a very different way, I think has been really personally meaningful for me. Um, and I think just being able to kind of create relationships with these families that we might not be otherwise able to engage with, um, and they might not get a chance to engage with other providers with the same expertise as us. So that's been a really powerful tool for me. Um, and I think in addition to that, just being able to see kind of the variation and what knowledge is out there about mental health services broadly, but particularly about autism. I think Angela mentioned before a lot of, you know, how far we've come in the past 10, 15 years in terms of our understanding of autism. Um, and we're telling you that sitting inside of a university. And so if you can imagine the farther you get from a university, kind of the slower that that trajectory is going to be in terms of gaining knowledge. And so we're able to see where that knowledge is maybe still 
still lacking and where that maybe is affecting services and understanding of these difficulties that children and their families might be facing. Um, and we're able to be the ones who are spreading that knowledge to them, who are maybe explaining this diagnosis to them for the first time, who are providing them with knowledge that they're then taking into their school district when they bring their report into their school district. And I think being able to kind of fill that void where there is a knowledge gap that you know, we have the knowledge for and can share with them that can make a difference, not just for their family, but then for other families who are seen in that community or school, I think has also been really powerful for me. The Autism Clinic opened in 2005, but in 2012, we established the Center for Autism Research. And we currently function together where the clinic is able to provide the the clinical services to the community, but the Center for Autism Research is designed to bring faculty and students from all over the university and especially in the College of Science, but throughout the university to apply their knowledge and their work to better understanding autism. So we're really working to, again, merge the science with the service and take the knowledge that we're learning train the students and work with the faculty so that um, we can make the most impact in these communities. If you could reach out to a family that is either concerned that their loved one might have autism or has recently received an autism diagnosis but doesn't know where to start, what would you want those families to know? Sure. So um, I would probably say that if they are concerned um, that they might have symptoms of an autism spectrum disorder, um, that they should contact their pediatrician, um, their early intervention office, their local school, kind of whoever's available for a screening. Um, what we do know is that the earlier we identify autism, um, then the earlier it is that we can recommend treatment. Um, and the earlier that we start to provide supports and treatment for any behavioral difficulties, language difficulties, et cetera, um, the more likely it is that the outcome of that is going to be a positive and a faster one. Um, we've talked a lot about kind of the ongoing nature of autism and that it can follow an individual kind of throughout their life, but there is also a lot of hope. We know a lot more about autism than we used to. We have a lot of really rich evidence-based practices that we know really do work for a lot of individuals and their families. Um, and so we know now more than ever before about the best ways to treat and support individuals with autism and their families. Um, and so being able to start that earlier would be best. Um, with that said, we're talking about a community right now who is often getting this diagnosis later than the average age. Um, and so that's not to say that diagnosis at that point is not helpful. We know that it's helpful at any age, um, just to say that the sooner the better. And so whether they're kind of in an early intervention age, in school age, or even into adulthood, if these are kind of behaviors, if we're seeing social and communication difficulties that are really getting in the way for an individual, I would just say that, you know, as soon as possible to kind of reach out and contact somebody that may be able to point them in the right direction. Um, and that could even be a clinic or university such as ours, um, but really just kind of getting them on the right path to make sure that they're getting some evidence-based practices to support them. How can families and providers work together to help rural patients? I'll take that one. Um, I think it's important to realize, first of all, that autism reflects a vulnerable population. And I say that for a few reasons, because one, because it's often under-recognized and underdiagnosed, And another reason is because 
people with autism are at increased risk for a number of other mental health problems besides the autism itself. Uh, they are more likely, likely to have difficulties like depression, anxiety, they may have behavioral challenges, they may experience traumas, and these can lead to difficulties with relationships and with school um, as they get older with employment and even being able to live on their own. So one thing I think is really important for the families and the providers to recognize the vulnerabilities that this population faces and to understand that they're going to need a lot of supports. And the kinds of supports that I would recommend are these evidence-based practices that, that Jen was mention, mentioning. These are interventions and diagnostic tools that have been uh, verified by science to show that they're effective uh, and they, they, are, they should be used to treat and provide diagnoses. If the families and the providers can work together to find those evidence-based practices, to figure out which are the ones that are that they are most able to use effectively, that's going to maximize the outcomes for those families. Uh, I think that there's a disconnect sometimes between understanding the developmental issues related to autism and the mental health problems, and that we really need to start looking at the intersection of both of those. So the second thing I would say is that it's really, really important for us to start training mental health providers in autism and autism providers in the mental health issues so that we can get the best, most effective treatments for uh, this, this population. So one last question. I'm going to make each of you answer this. If you could do anything to improve health and health care in rural America, what would you do? Do you want to start with that one, Jen, or do you want me to start? <laughs> I wish I had the answer to that. Um, so I would say complex problems require complex solutions. And one of the things that we have found in our work is that the two biggest hurdles to um, getting the services to the people in rural America are the availability and the affordability. And it sounds really simple, but I think it's very complex. It's going to involve a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am to put their brains together to figure out how to make these services available and accessible and affordable in these in these areas. Um, one thing that I think is really exciting is to be able to have universities partner with the community the way that we have been able to because we can overcome some of the barriers but then there still are issues of how are we going to get the resources to sustain these practices um, and so on so i would say the biggest thing is let's get the training out there let's get more people who can provide the services to actually reach the community I think those are all great points. I think in addition to getting the training out there, which I think is probably the biggest um, hurdle and would have the biggest impact, um, is just education and knowledge dissemination more broadly. Um, so of course, the more providers we have who can be trained to actually administer assessments, interventions, et cetera, the better. Um, but there's also a lot of other members of the community that um, individuals and their families are going to be interacting with that could play a really important role in things like identification of autism or just little behavioral supports that could be put in place for a child while they're in school or um, in a daycare, um, things like that. Um, and I think the more that school providers, extended family members, and 
just others broadly in the community um, are kind of aware of and have a really good understanding of what these behaviors look like, um, then the more this can actually be a full team effort. It really does take a village to go through this whole process from, you know, suspecting that there are maybe some behaviors that we're a little bit concerned about to arriving at the fact that this is or is not an autism diagnosis to then what do we do from there? Um, and how am I going to think about planning all of that, supporting all of that financially, time-wise, um, and feeling like everyone else in the community doesn't get it, I can imagine would be a really big barrier for families who maybe want to reach out and could really use that extended network of supports. Um, and so I think that the more the community that they're embedded within is really aware of and supportive of these matters, um, the more of that kind of sense of community any given family will feel as they're kind of going through this journey. And I'm going to put in a final plug for science, since we are in the culture science here at Virginia Tech. Awareness is the huge first step. I think science is the second step. We've got, we still have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn about what's best for autism, what's best for mental health, and how to get those to the people who need them. And that leads me to where I think policy is really the third um, most important thing, is finding ways to widely disseminate the reach and get the services to the people. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. This was very exciting. Thank you. That's Dr. Scarpa and Jennifer Bertolo on their recommendations for addressing the complex issues surrounding rural health. Details about Virginia Tech's mobile autism clinic can be found in the show notes. Mac was highlighted as the winner of the 2019 VRIJ Best Practices Award during the Rural Health Voice Conference. The 2020 event is scheduled for November 18 and 19 in Williamsburg, Virginia. Block the date off your calendar now and plan on joining our conversation there. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.